Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Elizabeth LaFonse, really happy to have you here. Um, could you introduce yourself in your own words? Yeah, absolutely. Ani Wabonanong, Dijakaz, Minwa Gekakandora, Minwa Bawating, and Dojaba. My name is Elizabeth LaFonse, and I am an Anishinaabe and Metis game designer, artist, researcher, and writer. What are some of the most recent games that you've worked on? I just released When Rivers Are Trails, which is an educational 2D adventure game in collaboration with the Indian Land Tenure Foundation. It's actually based off of their curriculum, Lessons of Our Land. And then uh, before then, in terms of my own work, was releasing Thunderbird Strike, which is a side-scroller in which you play as a Thunderbird striking lightning down at mining company buildings and the big giant mining trucks. <laughs> we will definitely talk about that one. That one's like quite quite striking in many ways. So, mm. um, But just to, to kind of like kick off, um, there's an academic, Carl P. White, who's argued that concepts such as the Anthropocene or climate change they tend to erase um, Indigenous experiences of the already existing catastrophes of capitalism. I was wondering, do you see resonances with this argument in the way that digital games have often worked with or struggled to work with the concept of the Indigenous? Mm, absolutely. Growing up for myself, I was always looking for women representations, Indigenous representations, and because there were so few of those, you know, you look at Nightwolf, Wolf Hawk Field, you know, the, it goes on and on. There's always a pattern and they're always the keeper of their people, the protector yeah. of their people. And you mm -hmm. don't actually know who their people are. It's often generalized, often displaced from the idea of nationhood and often also in relation to settlers. So indigenous people operate uh, or function within relation to the settler as the primary. And the reality of it is, as I understood growing up, a teaching that was passed on to me by my mother, Grace Dillon, is that we are already living in a post-apocalypse. For indigenous people, the apocalypse has already happened. And so how do we actually continue to thrive in an ongoing way? And how can we look at games in terms of especially of mechanics, as a way to extend teachings about science, about mm -hmm. traditional ecological knowledge, about ways of continuing on. There's recently a, um, a paper that's come out by Rhett Loban and uh, Tom Appley. They say that many digital games are about Eurocentric values at play. Do you see that, mm -hmm. that kind of critique as resonating with what you're talking about there? Absolutely, right down to mechanics. 
One of the very first papers I had ever written when I was in graduate school was about Age of Empires III, the War Chiefs, mm. and the irony of taking um, a real-time strategy game and having indigenous representations in it when those mechanics are all constructed around the values of taking, 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 taking. That's what you yeah. do. And yeah. even down to the way that a map is represented. So, uh, you know, a map in real-time strategy games, the land exists in relation to what the player has quote-unquote discovered. And also in relation to what they have claimed or what they own. You know, the colors are dependent on who has what territory and how the battles are unfolding. And so mm -hmm. as a way to respond to that in the 2D adventure game, When Rivers or Trails, the maps actually exist in relation to the land. Uh, state borders are removed. All the maps are from the 1890s. Mm -hmm. based on the real layout of railroads and where reservation lines were at that time in 1890. But it has been very interesting to see players go through a game that does not identify that you are, say, in the state of Minnesota or you are now in the state of Washington. But in fact, you have to learn to recognize the land and really look at the land in relation to itself and mm -hmm. how much that changes the way in which we're looking at uh, a game level, right? So yeah. it's really important then that we understand that there are ways in which game design can reinforce colonization through the very mechanics themselves. Yeah, and I guess a lot of your your practice may be uh, critiquing that sort of you know approach, I guess, or the, the way that those Eurocentric values are baked into what's usually considered by a lot of people at least non-political you know it's it's mechanics mm. it's a very kind of that physics kind of metaphor it's not a not a political kind of a thing whereas in your work indigeneity and politics seem inextricably linked a lot of the time how do you think about that relationship between indigeneity and politics and how does the game design build that out? It was really quite a fascinating experience, terrifying at times as well, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. know, hey, death threats, that's great. Um, oh, but God. during that process, I actually did not understand the work I was doing to be political. I am just mm -hmm. existing. I am an indigenous game developer, really just hoping for the best for the next generations continuing on stories. And so for me, when I made Thunderbird Strike, I was passing on Thunderbird stories from my family members and from people who I answer to, elders and storytellers. And then it really came forward for me when an oil lobbyist group attacked my game and accused it of being political. And when uh, the institution that I am a part of actually had to clarify with me, did you use any institutional equipment to develop this game. And no, I had not because it was actually entirely on my own laptop. I had been working to it prior to being hired into this position, but it was a potential issue. It was a legal issue. And through that process, I was audited because I had received an arts grant, which had partial funds from taxpayers in it. And uh, I have since gone on to be used as an example at a government level to um, articulate the reason for a new bill that is being passed forward in the state of Minnesota that says that anyone who receives arts funding, if 
they depict what they get to, as in the Senate and the court, determined to be, quote unquote, civil disobedience or, quote unquote, domestic terrorism, which was their accusation of Thunderbird Strike, was that I am right. training eco-terrorists. Even though it's a giant Thunderbird. It's yeah, not. you're playing as a Thunderbird <laughs> in a like cartoon-esque Woodland-style game in which you actually both have restoration points and destruction points, and just as often as you can strike lightning down at mining company buildings and big giant mining trucks, you can also strike it at animals, the bones of animals, to bring them back to life or at people to activate them, right, into form. And so, you know, there's a balance there. The teaching of that game is balance uh, and a continuance to the Thunderbird itself. So effectively now um, there is a law going through which says that a person who depicts what they, you know, choose to be what they claim to be domestic terrorism or civil disobedience can be charged up to 10 times the amount that they received. So Thunderbird wow. Strike had something around $3,700. Indy does, right? Like, I had a few dollars, woo! <laughs> it was great. Um, and so, but, and it doesn't retroactively apply to me, but someone like me, if I were to have moved forward with a game like this or any kind of form of art with yeah. these depictions, I could owe $37,000 simply for being indigenous and for speaking our truths. Wow. So that means that this route towards funding a game could be ultimately a liability. Was there any recognition that this might be metaphorical or was not actually advocating violence against a group or company or something like that? Or, you know, did they take it very literally? It was taken very literally, but it was also revealed thanks to game development, news sources, journalists who are familiar with games, making a move to actually interview the um, senator who was attacking me at the time, as well as the head of the oil lobbyist group, revealing through an interview that they had never actually played the game. So their argumentation was undone, but that was only thanks to the fact that there were people who knew about games who were able to come forward and became sort of this like media fighting media. Uh, yeah. You had Fox News saying this trains eco-terrorists and that went out. <laughs> across national news. And then that bigger story broke into smaller stories, which hit all of the state television sure. news shows, right? And yeah. so there was just sort of this smattering that happened. And then you had the follow-up from the game journalists who were able to say, well, this is actually a completely ridiculous argument yeah. or accusation. And in turn, I mean, really, honestly, like the way that that game was accessible initially was as a Dropbox link. <laughs> <laughs> like this was not intended to really go that far. I, I had hoped for my friends to play it and family to play it and yeah. you know maybe some wider indigenous communities and i had also submitted it to imaginative film and media arts festival which it went on to win best digital media that year which is the award that means the most to me because those are my peers and sure. what was interesting about it was it was not that the attack happened because of the award or that the award happened because of the attack they actually happened at about the same time simultaneously so it was mm. a fascinating experience for me that showed that sometimes like a game just strikes, right? Yeah. Just yeah. hits in the right moment. And that was one that just hit in the right moment in the right way, even though, you know, it can be played in 10 minutes. You know, there's a lot yeah. that can be said 
even in a very short kind of experience. And I think that's been the emphasis of a lot of my work is just trying to create accessible games, you know, yeah. games that can be reached by people who are on the other side of the digital yeah. divide, which is a really important aspect of my work. It's interesting that you say that there, there wasn't any intent for it to be political, but it's almost like there was a process of politicization for indigeneity to appear in the public sphere mm. is to be politicized even if there's no intentionality behind it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just that we are existing, that our existence is an act of resistance Yes, at every turn of the way. And you've used the term survivance to describe this. Absolutely. So survivance comes from Gerald Bisner, who is an Anishinaabe scholar and writer. And uh, my mother knows him and has included him in some of her work, well, a great deal of her work. And so I learned about that term uh, through her as a part of her uh, working with Gerald Visner on uh, including his works in, in her books, her anthologies. Survivance is one of those terms that has developed different meanings over time. And Visner even talks about being sort of a bit of a trickster in the way that the term is portrayed. One way of looking at it is that it is a combination of uh, survival as well as resistance. Another way of looking at it is thriving, right? And so, uh, and then another way of looking at it, the origin of it is that he was actually acting to, he uses the term appropriate survivance from the French. And so he took right. a French term to act back on them to say, actually, our stories, our oral stories and our retellings of history are in fact valid in the court of law. That was actually the very beginning of the term survivance. And so it is interesting how even that terminology goes back to being able to have power within a court setting in order to defend treaty rights, for example, you know, to be able mm -hmm. to say, well, yeah. my family said that this is a trap line that ran to this land. And so that land, therefore, is a part of my family. And we do have a legal right to it. You know, that was the true origin of the mm -hmm. term. And so it really reflects back on uh, what has happened with my work, where whether, you know, intentionally or not, and certainly in the case of Thunderbird Strike, completely unintentionally ending up in a situation of having to then uh, use, as Visner also talks about, words as arrows mm -hmm. in our defense. So there's a, you know, where the Indigenous may often be portrayed as the opposite of Western institutions. This is an attempt to navigate them or to make use of them in a certain kind of way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from from within, also from without. I think that there are many different possible approaches and that this can be reflected in uh, game development processes as well. And so there are many different possibilities for how Indigenous people can interact within game development. So for mm -hmm. me, I've built myself out as an indie dev, and I like to work on games that are sovereign in the sense of being completely self-determined when that is possible, which is the ideal, and mm -hmm. then also being available for free. There are um, another, you know, indie dev, Megan Byrne, has recently received a grant, and then she'll be running crowdfunding in order to support her game, and she will be releasing it with a price attached because because this is her career, right? To like really sure. make it yeah. as a game developer. And she does um, at every turn of the way she can encourage indigenous game developers to charge 
for their games to go ahead and do that. And then, you know, for my own work, I went a different path working from within academia to give that academic funding back Mm -hmm. to communities that it has so greatly benefited from over many generations. Sure. And you've got that interesting balance of like scholarly aspect to your work, but also the practice-led side as well. You've also written that games with an Indigenous emphasis can take many forms with exciting design possibilities. Thunderbird Strike obviously has a very strident voice and a very kind of distinctive visual start, whereas When the Rivers Were Trails seems to be going for more of a narrative-oriented experience. What are the kind of like game design techniques that you've been most excited about and uh, have been most influential in your work? Mm. Yeah, I think just the process of constant iteration and learning and that every game for me needs to come about of its own self. So Mm -hmm. I am not necessarily connected very deeply with any one engine. For me, it's like, what is the engine that will work for this particular design? Ideally, Mm -hmm. it would be great if we had an indigenous game engine that had Anishinaabe's sense of physics and quantum physics coded from the ground up. And I do know that we will come to a place where this will come into form. It just may not necessarily be, you know, me doing that work, but uh, I do feel that there are a lot of possibilities and, and there's a really deep importance to really being able to work from the code up. Because, for example, um, my language, Arashamon, is very much so about uh, relationships and connections. It's not so much about objects and naming something in regards to uh, it existing on its own. I think that all of that is a very exciting direction to mm-hmm. go in. And then in the meantime, working with the tools that we have accessible to us is really important and really looking at how can we have non-linear gameplay. I think that that was something that I struggled with when I was developing When Rivers Were Trails because that game did need to be linear in order to convey a particular amount of the curriculum for classrooms. That was a requirement. And so Mm -hmm. because of that, I think that that design aspect went a bit against some of my other work, which does tend to be either non-linear or it acts as a direct commentary on the typical conventions of game design. So for example, in Thunderbird Strike, usually one would expect a side scroller to go left to right. Those are the conventions that uh, we have been raised with as gamers. And instead it actually goes right to left. And there is a direct meaning for this. It's not just that I'm trying to like do the opposite of what would be expected in games, but rather (laughs) that um, the journey itself is a right to left journey. So you start in the Tarsons in Alberta and from uh, Anishinaabek worldview, thinking about being positioned from the Great Lakes and looking south down over the lakes, then you're coming from that direction, uh, the Tarsans from the right, and then you're heading in the direction of left towards the Straits of Mackinac. And so there is a specific reason for why you are taking that movement. And it really is reflective of the worldviews that are held within Mm -hmm. the design. And so I think that those kinds of aspects are what excite me most is like, how can we bring our teachings in through Mm -hmm. design in ways that are tangible and can help create new kinds of experiences? 
Yeah, and it's, it seems to be that you can't take for granted what a AAA game developer would take for granted, that there is a certain kind of person who would appreciate this game, who would play it, and there's certain distribution models that are already out there, they're fully deployed, and that kind of smooths the whole whole process of what they're going for, whereas you seem to be reacting in each game to the, the challenge of constructing a certain kind of audience. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this is why there's no one right way, no one particular way for Indigenous game developers to build out their work because there will be people who are working on games like Carl Peterson. He's working on um, a game that is called uh, the Teepee Builder game. Mm-hmm. He's Lakota. And that game potentially will appeal to Lakota players, but also to a much wider audience that would be interested in a cultural sure. game. Mm-hmm. And so he is developing out his work in that way. And then with my work, I always went for the grant-oriented approach or arts-oriented approach so that I could have that exact freedom. It wouldn't sure. matter to me then if only one person plays. You know, I had, um, there was a player from uh, the Indian Land Tenure Foundation who was looking at When Rivers Were Trails, and she said that it brought tears to her eyes to see her methodologies infused Mm -hmm. in the gameplay. And that's all it really Mm -hmm. takes for me, is just having even one person say, okay, I connect with this in a way, and it's beautiful to see that our teachings can be relayed into design, that we're not always just reskinning other games in order to express ourselves, that there are other ways to go about it. And that's not to say that that's the only way to go. I think that there are many different ways. But in my work, I tend not to actually physically represent Native people as the player character, such Mm -hmm. that you are seeing yourself as an avatar, because I do not want to personally create a game in which anyone is like, quote unquote, playing Indian as in, you know, Native American Indian, as in the miswording of it. But like that tends to be something that can happen is this idea of like, oh, we're going to play Indian, quote unquote, yeah. Indians and cowboys. And so how can we then ensure that does not happen? And so, you know, I, I, uh, you're actively trying to avoid that game yeah. as empathy machine. Right. Because like, do, is that actually what we're going for? Awareness, absolutely, some form of understanding, but do you need to have empathy through being or taking that space or being Mm. in the form of Mm -hmm. someone else? Or can we have games in which you gain empathy because you are a part of a wider experience, but you do not have to be that to have empathy for it? Should we not have empathy inherently? for all people. I guess if you're working with a design that's more about relations than beings, then that's Mm -hmm. kind of like inherent in what you're doing. What are you currently looking forward to the most in both academia and game development? Right now, I am starting a game that is entirely for me with no deadline. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. I know. I know. It's like, wow, I'm like actually making something uh, just for me, and that will be great. And so right now, I am working on a game with beadwork in it. 
you play as yourself, um, you just are simply uh, touching the screen or providing input and you are going along a pathway that's very much like a river and you get to gravitate towards different beads that you would like to collect. Mm -hmm. And as you gravitate towards different colors, those colors bring themselves into form as florals. And for every level, you are creating your own uh, floral patterns uh, that continue on a vine. And so it is a very uh, beautiful game to work on. It's very meditative. It brings me back to looking at traditional plants uh, and medicinal purposes mm -hmm. for those plants. And so I am very excited to work on that. It will also have a language component in Anishinaabemowin. And something that I'm very excited about doing with this game is that it will be full language immersion, like some of my other work. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a sense, then not needing to explain itself. You know, it's not going to be educational. It will be something that if people want to learn more about the language, they can seek that out for themselves. Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. We'll definitely look forward to letting a thousand Indigenous game engines bloom in the future. <laughs> so <laughs> where can people find out more about your work? Yeah, they can find out more at elizabethleponce.com. And thank you, Miigwech, for having me. No worries. Thanks, Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.org.